0: Well, this morning we are going to return in our study to Matthew chapter 18, the Lord's teaching regarding the church. When we come to think about the church, many things come to mind. I think the first thing that should come to mind is that the church belongs to Jesus. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells the disciples that I will build my church. He owns it. He possesses us. And what is the church? It is the gathered assembly of those who have been redeemed by Christ. Those who, although we were dead in our trespasses and sins, have been forgiven and bought back and redeemed and saved and transformed and transferred into a new kingdom. As Colossians 1 says, the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. So, we are redeemed by Christ in order that we might live in Christ. This is why He calls us His body, and He is our head, according to Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 1.22. And in Christ, according to Ephesians 4.15, we are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fit and held together by every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body to be built up in itself in love. So we are put together and built together and growing together. We are his flock, according to John ten. We are his household, according to Ephesians two nineteen. We are his bride, Ephesians five twenty-three. We are his temple, first Peter two five. And so as the church of Jesus Christ, He regards us as lovely as a prized possession. And we are united in Him, filled by His Spirit, called to His ministry, the ministry of serving one another, of giving to one another, of building up one another, praying for each other, interceding for each other, and evangelizing the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been given so much as a body of believers, and in Christ we possess a great many blessings, but we also possess something else that we don't oftentimes talk about, and that is His authority. Not many today consider the authority of the local church, but Scripture is clear that we have it. Of course, it is not an inherent authority, an authority that comes from within ourselves Sometimes pastors and leaders have a tendency to, to flaunt some kind of a, a self-perpetuating authority that you do what I say because I'm the pastor. Or other times it'll be the congregational membership that will say that we, we have the authority, we can, we can vote you right out of the assembly. And co- straight congregationalism, which is in old, old days known as brownism, a straight democracy, is actually very dangerous. And I'm saying this as a Congregationalist pastor. Congregationalism can be very dangerous if it is purely democracy without an elder, a strong elder led presence. Because then we start to wield a a supposed authority against uh, the, the body of Christ, against the doctrine of Christ, if we were so to do so. And so we don't have an inherent intrinsic authority, it's not our authority our authority has been delegated to us by Christ. It is a delegated authority. It is by the authority that Christ has established the church on earth, and we are to be His witnesses. In fact, the church is the only true bodily presence of Christ's redeemed kingdom on earth. The church is therefore the the preview of the millennial kingdom. It is a taste of heaven, of the eternal state. Now, Again, with all that being said, the realm of the church's authority is pretty limited. We, we can't wield this authority willy-nilly. There is only so many ways that Christ has delegated His authority for us to be exercising, and yet one of those ways is through church discipline, especially with regard to the forgiveness of sins. And so, if you haven't already turned there, go to Matthew 18 in your copy of Scripture. We're going to be working our way just progressively through. We've spent the last four weeks Talking about church discipline, specifically verses 15, 16, and 17, we've tapped the brakes and slowed way down in order to expand the teaching of these verses, and hopefully uh, you all have a better understanding of how the church is to discipline those who are caught in some kind of a sinful trespass, that one day when this actually comes to fruition on a larger scale, we'll have tools by which we can exercise this authority. And so that has been, a, I think, a helpful and needed precursor to this. But the progression of Matthew 18 builds slowly and steadily. And if you've been with us for a while, you've seen we started in Matthew 18 quite a while ago. I mean, we've been working our way through slowly, steadily. Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach the disciples about how they are to minister to His little ones, to those who belong to Him. The Lord does not desire that any of them should stumble into sin. Rather, that we as believers, as His little ones, should be preserved and nurtured. Verse 14, So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should perish. So God's desire is that all of us who belong to Christ will make it to the end. We're not going to fall off and drop off. Again, God's desire is that we persevere. And yet sometimes, as His beloved little ones, we do stumble. We do fall into sin. And when we do, we need to be rescued. And that is the job of the church. The Lord gives forth His plan of rescue, His plan of reconciliation, His plan of restoration. This is what we know to be church discipline. Again, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, just to recap here, to remind your your understanding here, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Now, at every point along the way, we see that this is a sinning brother or sister. If they repent at any step along the way, then they can be forgiven and restored. The desire, and we talked about this for several weeks, the desire is to keep the circle of knowledge of these events to be as small as possible for as long as possible. We don't want people's sins to just be, uh, you know, telegraphed to every single other person. We don't want to put it on bulletin boards in the front of the church and talk about each other's sins. That's not the point. The point is to reconcile, to to lead that person to repentance and to reconcile them and to restore them quietly, privately, if you can. If you can't, you keep on going until they are restored, until they are reconciled to the Lord and to His church. But again, we can restore them quietly, privately, but if they don't, You progress systematically through this process. You don't skip steps. You progress until the point if they harden their heart to the absolute nth degree, then they will ultimately be excommunicated for their hardness of heart, for sinning against the body of Christ, against Him Himself. But at the end of verse 17, it brings us to a very challenging point because we're faced with a series of questions now. We're talking about removing a sinning brother who's hardened their heart against the Lord, removing them from the assembly, at this point, we have to ask, who then has the right to determine which sins are serious enough to warrant church discipline and which do not? That's a huge question, isn't it? Because couldn't, I mean this could be applied to any possible sin that we can think of. How do we know if a person's repentance is genuine? Who determines that? They say, I'm sorry for my sin. How do you know that that repentance is sufficient for the Lord and for church discipline? How do we know if God really forgives them? How do we know if we as a congregation are in the right? Aren't these nagging questions? They've been on my mind for the last month or so. How do we know that we're doing things right? How do we know that God is pleased with our discipline as a church? These are things that we must ponder, and the Scripture gives us teaching and gives us clarity in understanding the measure of the church's authority. And Jesus is not silent here. Look at verse 18 through 20. That's where we're going to be today, by the way, 18 through 20. Jesus continues in his teaching, he says, "'Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst.'" Now, admittedly, these verses have suffered from gross amounts of misinterpretation and misapplication, and I'm willing to bet that some of you, and I would even put my hand up as well, have misapplied these verses before. I know I have in years past, maybe even last week. I don't even know. But these, ver- these are challenging verses because, boy, you read them at face value, and you're thinking, boy, I'm not really sure exactly what this means, and so well, let's just go over here and apply it this way. But here's the thing, we need to understand, verse 18, let me just go through some of this, 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Many interpreted this over the course of time to mean that uh, we are given the authority or the ability to conform the will of heaven to the will on earth. That's one interpretation, that somehow if we as the church can claim something to be true, then heaven must accept it. That, that seems a logical interpretation of this verse. The Roman Catholic Church has used verses like this in order to justify the power of popes and magisteriums in the church to create new canon law, and they'll say, well, the Bible tells us that we have the right to do it, so we'll, we'll create a new law and that we're, we're going to bind it on earth, and so therefore it must be bound in heaven. Is that what this, this verse means? That the church on earth determines something to be true, and so therefore heaven is bound to accept it. Verse 20, that's another one, another interpretation of verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. I'm there in their midst. We've all heard that verse, I'm sure, used in different capacities. Men have, many have seen this as justification for various small group gatherings being accepted as churches. The small group, the the house church movement has flourished based on the back of verses like this, that if me and my buddies get together, suddenly it becomes a church gathering, as long as we do it in Jesus' name. That's the importance, right? Because going going out and going fishing together, two or three Christians, uh, as long as we go in His name, that's church. I've heard people justify all kinds of things with this verse. And again, many house churches fly under this banner. And I would even argue, and we've talked about this before several months ago, that from scripture there are several required elements that that we need to comprise a church. When we planted this church ten years ago, did we just decide one day, I think we're done with our previous church? Let's just go and do something else. And just hopeful we'll get together and it'll just be a thing. That that's not the pretense under which we planted. That's not how you plant a church, that's not how you begin a new work. There must be the ministry of the Word of God. There must be qualified elders. You must be sent by qualified elders. There must be regenerate church membership. There must be the ministry of ordinances. All of these things are components of a local gathered assembly. We don't just do whatever we want and then baptize it with some proof-texted verses. And there are those who say that we don't need those things to be a church. Because Jesus said, as long as there's two or three gathered together in my name... I'm there in their midst, and so therefore we're all set. But is that what these verses teach? Now, you're going to guess by my tone here, my sarcasm, that's not what these verses teach. But I'll tell you, we we suffer through some of these misinterpretations ourselves because maybe we don't do enough study to really understand what these verses mean. We need to remember here that every single verse in the Bible has a context. That's really important. No verse is allowed to be wrenched out of its context. The Lord has said everything for a reason. Nothing is random. There's no jot or tittle of Scripture in this book that is here for just a random reason. Everything is here for a purpose. He certainly didn't inspire these kinds of verses in order to be wrenched out of context to proof text strange doctrines. That's not why He gave us the Word of God. When we do Bible study, there are a few disciplines that we need to make use of in order to help us understand what we're reading. One discipline is to examine the immediate context surrounding the verse or verses in question. Now, if you look at verses 18 through 20 here, we see that they're sandwiched between the Lord's teaching on restoring sinning believers in verses 15, 16, 17, which we spent a lot of time on, and the immediate verses after are an elongated teaching on the doctrine of forgiveness. And we're going to spend some time starting next week. So verses 21, all the way to the end of the chapter, is all about forgiveness. So the previous verses are about dealing with the repentance of sin and church discipline, dealing with the doctrine of sin. The, the subsequent verses are on forgiveness the forgiveness of sin. And so that gives us some kind of an idea about where we're supposed to be going when we understand the middle of these three, these three verses here. So, to interpret verses 18 through 20, to teach that somehow we have the ability to bind God's will to ours... that somehow that we can build a church with only a few Christian friends, that is not the natural understanding of how the context would go here. Why would Jesus drop that kind of teaching in the middle of a very elongated, slow-building teaching on the church, on sin, on discipline, on reconciliation, on forgiveness? Why would He just drop something else in the middle of that? Now, is He allowed to do that? Of course He can. He's the Lord. But is that what He's doing? I don't believe that's what He's doing at all. Now, these all fit within the context here. And again, Matthew 18 has been building progressively. And just to recap, again, we go from the humility and dependence of faith in Christ in verses 2 through 4. We see the protection of his little ones in verses 5 through 7. We see the importance of spiritual protection and rescuing of lost sheep in verses 8 through 14, the method by which we can confront and restore straying sheep in verses 15 through 17, and as I mentioned, we see forgiveness in 21 through 35, and so these three verses have to fit somehow. They are not disjointed. But there's a second discipline we can employ the use of, and that is the principle of what we know to be synthesis. Or, if you want to use a smaller understanding of it, synthesis is kind of a tricky word, uh, Scripture interpreting Scripture. Scripture interpreting Scripture. There are, are there other places that the Lord gives understanding in ways that can be helpful here? Did He speak about this teaching anywhere else in the Bible? Because if He did, let's go from what's clear to what's maybe more ambiguous. And does He do it? I believe the answer is yes. If you remember back in your minds, and you can even flip over to Matthew 16 in your copy of Scripture... Just flip a page or so back in your Bible, Matthew 16. There's another place where Jesus is teaching on the doctrine of the church. He only uses this word ecclesia, church, twice in the Gospel of Matthew. Once here in Matthew 16, and the second time is in Matthew 18, which we've been talking about previously. These are the only two places that he talks about the church here. And in verse 18, he announces to the disciples that he is going to create and build a new entity. Matthew 16 is, is a, a, it's a watershed moment in his teaching. He tells the disciples, I'm going to do something new. And he's basically saying, you guys ready for, for this? I will build my church. And they're looking at each other like, what is he talking about? He's going to build his ecclesia, his gathered assembly of believers. And verse 18, he tells Peter, who is representing the entire group, He says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and this rock is referring to the profession of faith that Peter just made, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so it's very clear that Jesus, Jesus is the one who's going to both build and sustain the church. Once again, as I said earlier in in my introduction here, the church is His possession. We belong to Him. It's not the building. The building is arbitrary. The people, you all, us together, we are the church. We belong to him. And so everything he's going to do to build and sustain us, it's on him. It's his prerogative. And then he adds this in verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We see that verse in chapter 18, don't we? So we've seen this before. Now he's talking about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we, when we talked about this verse, we noted that keys, the, the notion of keys, that's a biblical metaphor for authority. Authority. To have the keys to something. If you, When you go into a, a facility, when you walk into a building, you can always tell there's a facilities manager, the guy with a big, huge, fat ring of keys on his hip. That's the guy you want to go talk to because he's the one who can open every door inside the building. He has the authority to go in the door, out the door, into the offices. He can go anywhere he wants to go because he has the keys to the entire facility. That's the idea here. Who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And he tell, Jesus tells the disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you authority. Again, what you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and what you will loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, they don't understand exactly what these keys are pertaining to, but Jesus has promised them that he will give them spiritual authority, and whatever that authority would be would have been bound or have been bound in heaven, and whatever that is, we don't specifically know at this time, but there is something to this metaphor at this point. When we go again to Matthew 18, we see that the context now has been more clearly defined. Now we're talking about church discipline. In Matthew 16, it's just the keys of the kingdom, and it's more generic. By Matthew 18, now we know it's church authority, specifically for church discipline. But again, verse 15, it places the responsibility of confronting sinning brothers and sisters on individual believers. So not only do you have the authority to go to someone who's in sin, you have the responsibility to go to somebody who's in sin. If your brother sins against you, or sins in general, go to them and tell them their fault. And then he says, if they listen to you, you've won your brother. So there's there's a responsibility there. There's authority there. But it also places responsibility uh, on us to discern whether they have repented or not, right? He says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And you, all right, great. But then he says in verse 16, if he doesn't listen to you, go take someone else along with you. Get someone to help you to confront that person. It doesn't mean you go and blab to other people. You don't gossip about them. No, you bring them with you to help you to show them their sin and see them to be reconciled. But how do you determine that? Well, you have to have some measure of, 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 of spiritual wisdom and insight, and there is a level of authority there. No, I'm going to bring somebody else with me to confront my sinning brother or sister. Verse 17, the responsibility is now given to the whole church. Again, we're talking about, big context here, we're talking about discerning when sins have taken place and discerning whether or not repentance has occurred. This is a big deal, isn't it? Because if we don't get this right, this could have huge implications for us. But what is in view here? Well, several weeks after this event, possibly even a month or two, After Jesus goes to the cross, and so right now for Matthew 18, we're looking ahead in our minds here in the story, Jesus goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, goes into the ground. After he resurrects, he meets back up with the disciples. John chapter 20, he appears to them later on. And he tells them, he shows them both of his hands, he shows them the marks in his side, and he says to them when he sees them the first time after the resurrection, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And then the Bible tells us that he breathes on them. Lots of scholars have wondered what this is all about. I personally believe, and I think that there's a strong case to be made, he's predicting and sort of projecting and illustrating the future coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Because what they hear from Jesus' own mouth, the sound of Him blowing on them is what they hear later on when the Spirit comes. And He even says to them at that moment, receive the Holy Spirit. Now we know they haven't received the Spirit yet, but they will. And then He says in verse 23 of John's Gospel here, He tells them this. This is very interesting. After He says you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, He says this, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So now you start to see that we're drawing a a scarlet thread here between Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 18, and now all the way to John chapter 20. Now it's like a year of time here where Jesus first announces He's going to give them the keys of the kingdom to now He's actually showing them what this looks like. If you forgive the sins of any, they've been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. And so it's clear here that Jesus intends to give the authority to the church in order with, uh, with regards to dealing with sins. And again, that seems to be the most logical sense of Matthew 18.18. 18. Again, go back to Matthew 18.18. 18. Truly I say to you, In the context of where we've been in church discipline, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so what is this binding and loosing? What are we talking about here? Well, again, in the context, in the biblical context of church discipline and forgiveness, we're talking about the issue of dealing with sins. And we consider several passages here. He seems to be referring to the authority to declare and discern if the person's sins have been forgiven. Again, the Lord grants the responsibility to discern when a sin has occurred, when it should be bound upon a person's conscience in order to confront them, when repentance has occurred, and when they've been restored. That whole block of responsibility falls on the church. Now, this does not mean that we are the ones who grant ultimate forgiveness. Only God can forgive sins. Doesn't, that's what Mark 2 says, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's right. We know that that Scripture in Mark 2 is talking about Jesus having the authority to forgive sins. But we're not the ones who, as soon as somebody sins, we, we open up the floodgates of heaven and say, I now pronounce your sins forgiven on my own authority. It's God who can do this. And yet... We must bear witness to the promises of heaven applied here on earth. And so again, verse 18, it's interesting because Greek scholars have been careful to tell us that the grammar of this verse, and I was looking at this and trying to untangle it, according to D.A. Carson, who's a noted New Testament scholar, he says that the the verb tense in verse 18, he calls it a, a paraphrastic future perfect. I had to Google that a couple of times. But what he's talking about here is the translation of the verse here. Some translations render verse 18, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. However, it's more accurately rendered this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, which is what the New American Standard Translation renders the verb as. Why does that matter? Are we just wrangling about terms? Why does that matter? Because it shows us that it's not heaven taking cues from us. We're not binding heaven. Rather, it is we who are taking cues from heaven. That when we're binding and loosing and forgiving and retaining, it's based on what has already been done in heaven. It already shall have been bound in heaven. So, to say it another way, we're telling people that their sins have been forgiven because the Bible tells us the conditions under which they can be forgiven. So, a person says, I'm sorry for my sin, you tell them specifically, you can be forgiven if you repent. Again, repentance, confession, obedience, all these things are talked about in the Scriptures. And so, when you confront a person in sin, and they respond by confessing their guilt and they verbalize that to you. When you can see it on their face, you know when a person's repentant and when they're not. I mean, all of us, if you've seen a person who's not, they just kind of roll their eyes and, well, I guess it makes you feel better. I'm sorry. That's not repentance. That's not asking for forgiveness at all. But when you see that they ponder, and again, it's not all about body language because some people do it differently, but you, you, we're not fools, right? When a person is contrite, when a person tells you, look you in the eye and they say, I'm I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And there's contrition. There's shame. And there's even a resolve to obey the Lord. I I don't want to do that again. You understand what this looks like because you understand what what it's going to be to forgive them. But when they do this, when they demonstrate repentance and when they bear the fruits of repentance, when you see that they've actually changed and their demeanor changes and their life begins to change, you can tell them God forgives you if they're in Christ. Why? Why do you have the right to say that? Because according to the promises in Scripture, they have been forgiven. The Bible tells us that they have been. I go oftentimes to 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why do I love that verse so much? Why do I quote it every other week to you? Because I need that verse and so do you. Because there are times when you sin against the Lord and you're confessing, you're repenting, and you think to yourself, I just don't feel forgiven. I feel awful. Or you confess to somebody else and they say, no, I forgive you, I love you, and I know you're sorry, and I forgive you, and you leave and you go back home, and you still feel that guilt and that shame, and the enemy uses it against you, and you just don't feel like you've been forgiven, even though you have, you have to build your understanding and your confidence and your faith on the truth of Scripture, If I have confessed my sins to the Lord, and it's genuine, if I genuinely have confessed to the Lord, the Bible promises me that I've been forgiven. And by the way, it's on the character of God to do it. God is faithful and just to forgive. And so when you tell a person, if you you genuinely confess your sins, do you confess your sins? They say, yes, yes yes, I hate my sin, I'm so sorry I did this, then you can with confidence on the Word of God tell them you're forgiven. And it's binding in heaven because it's the truth of the Word of God. There's great authority there. Now, again, we face the immediate objection. What if we're wrong? What if you've been duped by their confession? What if a person is offering the the forgiveness and they're misguided? What if I don't have the conviction to actually hold your feet to the fire and say, no, you need to repent? What if I make the mistake? What if I'm simply in error? That's where the church comes in. 19 and 20. Jesus says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Verse 19 presents a similar sentiment as verse 18, except now it's not just you, now it's two of you who are agreeing together on earth. Again, some have seen this as some kind of a a verse about God granting answered prayer to earnest people. Oh, well, whatever, whatever I pray for, then God will just give me whatever I want. Now, in this way, it feels very much like Matthew 7, 7, which is, again, the truth of the Word of God. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. But what is that teaching? Is it teaching you can just demand things from God, and He'll give it to you? No. Matthew 7, 7 is teaching us that we are to entrust our hearts to the Lord, that if we have needs, we go to Him, and we trust Him, that if we ask Him, it shall be given to us according to his will. Because again, I don't want to ask for things and receive things that are against the will of God, do you? I don't don't want anything that's not his will. So when I'm asking him for something, the presupposition is that I'm asking according to his will, right? But he says, whatever you ask for, whatever you seek after, whatever you knock, God is there to bless you because he's your father. He also disciplines you and chastens you and grows you. But when you need something, He's there to provide it. We are to trust Him. That's the whole point of those kinds of verses, to encourage our hearts to trust in God and to seek after Him for everything that we need. He's our Heavenly Father. But is that what this verse is talking about? Is this just a verse dropped in the middle about the the power of effective prayer? Many scholars actually see a connection here Back to the broader context of Matthew 18, because remember, Jesus has already made mention of this phrase, when two of you who are gathered, or two of you who agree. The word here, agree, in the Greek is uh, symphoneo. It's where we get the word symphony. The idea is it's a, a sounding together. Whenever people come together and they agree, and their minds and their hearts are sounding together, they see things and hear things the same way, that's what we're talking about Here. But again, the context is dealing with sin and forgiveness. And so if two believers are involved in reconciliation and they come together united in understanding, then when they agree together and when they prayerfully seek the Lord, He promises to confirm their judgment. John MacArthur notes here, Even if two of Jesus' followers are in agreement with each other, that a sinning believer has either repented or refused to repent, they can be sure that they are also in agreement with the Father who is in heaven. So again, when when you're going to a person and they're caught in sin, and you ask them and you tell them, you're in sin, I'm calling on you to repent and, and turn away from that sin and be restored to God and be restored to the church. Now, you're seeing this a certain way. As soon as you bring someone else along and they see it the same way, now, they might disagree with you. They might say, brother, they're not really in sin. This is just your issue with them. Or, or this sin is not as big as you're making it out to be because there could be some of that too. But when two or three come together and that other person who is a, an objective believer comes alongside and says, no, actually, yeah, you see it right. They're caught in sin. Brother, you need to repent. And when they do repent and you acknowledge their repentance and someone else sees the exact same thing, when you gather together, when you see and agree together, we can be sure that that's true. Again, how can we be so sure? Verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. What does this mean? This is the second time we've seen the two or three mentioned in this chapter. Jesus says the same phrase in verse 16. He says if they don't listen to you in their sin take two one or two more with you that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And so again the two or three gathering together here is for the purpose of verifying the truth of an occurrence or of sin or of repentance. And we've seen it here again. This time however in verse 20 it seems to be more about discerning if a sin can be forgiven or if it's going to be retained. This is not about finding ways to make Jesus appear in our midst. This is not Aladdin's lamp here, where we gather together and we just pray, and then somehow Jesus is there versus some other time when he's not there. Jesus is always with us, is he not? He's, he's omnipresent. He retains the same attributes of God that the Father and the Spirit have. But so that's not what this is talking about. Rather, Jesus being in their midst, this is about a gathering of Christians that have to do with with affirming judgment. When they agree together about a a judgment about sin or forgiveness, the Lord is with them. We see this in Psalm 82.1. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Same imagery there. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples, when the two of you come together, two or three of you come together to decide a spiritual matter, specifically on church discipline, I'm with you. I'm with you. But how can he say that? Because again, what if we're wrong? What if we handle it wrong? Well, I think what's important for us us to note a couple of things here. Every Christian possesses two things. Every Christian possesses two things. The Word and the Spirit. Every Christian has the Word and the Spirit. First, the Word of God has been given to us in the Scriptures. It's been given to the church. The Lord has inspired it. He has preserved it. He has delivered it to us. It is inerrant without errors or mistakes. It is authoritative. It's binding on our conscience. It is sufficient. It's enough for every spiritual need. And the Word of God expresses God's purposes, His prescriptions, His commands and His comforts, His glory and His gospel. His Word tells us of God's standard. It conveys His commands to us. It also tells us about sin and wickedness, too. It teaches us about God's purpose to save His people by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so, as we judge, as we judge things around us, we do all things according to the Word of God. And we know that if we do that, He's with us because we're using His Word It's not that two or three who are gathered together are just writing their own rules here. It's not my opinions about a matter versus your opinions about the matter. We go to Scripture first. What does the Bible say about any matter? Is this sin? Well, what does the Scripture say? This person is guilty of strife or slander or sexual sin or adultery, or murder, or whatever it may be, anger that's bitterness toward another person. We can find it in the Scriptures, what is sin? And so, when you call something for what it is, you have the Scriptures who have informed you of this truth. And so, when we judge, we use the Scriptures. But what if we misunderstand the Word of God? Or what if we judge incorrectly? This is why He's given us the Holy Spirit, who lives in us and dwells with every single Christian believer Not only does the Holy Spirit breathe new life into us at regeneration, He also gives us illumination and understanding. This is why Jesus told the disciples in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now, there's a context to that verse. He's talking about the inspiration of the Scriptures themselves, but the principle is certainly true, that the Spirit of God does guide us in truth. He gives us spiritual understanding. Ever read a Bible verse before, and you're, and you're pondering, and you're pondering, and you're pondering, and you're like, what does this mean? And you pray, and you read it, and you're praying, and you're praying, and then one day you're reading the Bible, and you're like, oh, that's what that means. Ever happened to you before? I hope it has. Yeah. But that, that's the Spirit of God giving illumination. You understand verses. You understand how they go together, which is called doctrine. You understand biblical principles. You're able to discern and have wisdom. That doesn't come because we're all so smart, It comes to us because the Spirit of God is working in our understanding. He gives us spiritual eyes to see things. And so we have the Word and the Spirit. And within the context of the local church, the Word of God is ministered by the leaders and the elders of the church and the teachers of the church. And the Spirit illuminates and convicts all of us according to His will. And so when the Word is clearly given, that's why I'm always praying for clarity and accuracy before I preach. I don't care about preaching a barn burner. I don't care about that. I only care that this Scripture makes sense to you, that it's clear, it's in context, it's accurate, that I'm not making an error or a mistake when I'm presenting to you the clarity and the truth of the Word of God. If I'm wrong, tell me where I'm wrong and I'll fix my understanding. Prove where I am wrong, and I'll gladly change. That's not a challenge to you. That's a commitment to you. Okay? Understand what I'm saying here. It's a commitment because clarity in preaching, clarity in Bible study, clarity in teaching is the bedrock of spiritual understanding. If I'm misapplying, if you're misapplying, then all bets are off here. So clarity in teaching is so important. The church is built squarely on the exposition of Scripture, rightly divided. So important, beloved, so important. But if that's being done, if the Scripture is clearly understood and clearly exposited, then the Spirit of God, who is living in all of you, is using your spiritual understanding to interpret and apply and convict. And when the Word and the Spirit work together, we come to understand and know the will of God. We can discern truth and error, and it becomes binding on our conscience at that point. Because the rightly understood, Spirit-applied Scripture is God's authoritative Word to us. It's how we're convicted of our own sins. It's how we understand what's going on in culture. It's how we understand what's happening inside of each of us. And so, if Christ promised to be in the midst of two or three gathered together in His name how much more so will He stand in the midst of 200 of us that will gather together in His name? And so, with regard to church discipline, when we look into God's Word together, and we agree together about the nature of sin, what constitutes sin, and we agree together about what constitutes genuine repentance, and when we agree together about what constitutes reconciliation and restoration, we can be assured that Christ is here working with us and through us, And He's aligning Himself to us because we're aligning ourselves to Him. What is true for us on earth has been true in heaven because it's come from heaven. The Word and the Spirit have come from heaven. And in this way, the church manifests true authority to say what is pleasing to God and what is not. This is why regenerate church membership matters so much. When the elders all get into a room and a person sitting there... And it's a little bit intimidating sometimes, but when we're all sitting there in a line asking questions about your testimony and your conversion and your life, it's not because we're trying to be mean or put you on the spot. It's because we're trying to discern, do you actually know and love Christ? If you do, praise God, and then you belong here. And regenerate church membership matters because of these kinds of things. But if this is just a matter of, well, I moved to town and this is the closest gathering I can find, and I'm just going to join and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have no business deciding spiritual matters. So regenerate church membership matters. This is also why qualified leadership matters. Because if you don't have a competent preacher or a competent teacher to give you the word of God, and I pray that I am, if that's not happening, then all this falls apart as well. It's a sobering responsibility, beloved, that should not be taken lightly, but it's also a tremendous blessing. A tremendous blessing that we get to sit under the authority of Christ and manifest, manifest that loving authority amongst one another, and we can actually have the authority under heaven to tell people when they've sinned against God, guess what? You can be forgiven. And here's how. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone who went to the cross and paid for you. He shed His blood to satisfy the wrath of God that was against you. And because of His sacrifice on the cross, His shed blood on the cross, His atonement, the payment made for you, because of that, guess what? You can have forgiveness. You can be right with God. And you can be sure of that. And if you confess and turn away and die to yourself and hate your own sins, and trust in Him, and love Him, and chase Him, then you belong to Him. And when you die, which is a sure reality, when you die, you will go to heaven and be with Him forever. I have the authority by the Scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, to tell you that. You will see the Lord, and you will live forever, and your sins will be forgiven. That's not authority I possess inherently, and neither it is yours. That's authority from the Word of God. We can tell people how to be made right with the One who created them. What a blessing. Isn't it a blessing and a great responsibility? But this is how, beloved, we can help one another be reconciled to the Lord and to each other. This becomes how we manifest the the authority behind church discipline. It's been given to us to help each other to be reconciled to one another, and to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You because even though at face value, Lord, these verses can seem challenging, and so many have misapplied and misinterpreted these verses, and Lord, we're seeking true understanding. Lord, I'm standing before You, and I'm asking that that this is clear. I've been praying this has been clear, Lord. But in the end, you're the one who convicts. You're the one who gives us spiritual understanding. You apply these truths to our hearts. You bind our conscience for sin, for righteousness, for judgment, for truth. You bind us to you, Lord. And you're the one who's working in this assembly. And Lord, I would even add to that, if there are anyone in this assembly who who don't know you, who've never been reconciled to you, or maybe if there's those in this assembly who are not reconciled to a brother or a sister in Christ, if they've sinned against somebody else... Lord, that you would use your word to convict them and that they would go with genuine repentance and ask for forgiveness and that true forgiveness would be granted, Lord. Father, that's where we're going next. Your word is very clear that that's the next step for us is forgiveness. How do we forgive each other? We can forgive because you have first forgiven us. So what a great blessing it is, Lord, to stand underneath the word and myself. I'm standing under your word, O Lord. And, and we are seeking understanding of the Scriptures by the Spirit. Lord, please help us. Help us to grow as a church. Help us to be submitted to You under the banner of Your full, rightful authority. We thank You for the truth of the Word of God. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.